We're looking at John's Gospel today. That's, uh, if you don't mind using the Bible on the table rather than the sheet as usual, just because I will be referring to a few other verses um, outside of our main passage, and it might just be helpful to have it open in front of you. So that's on page 1083, uh, John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. <clears throat> Why don't I pray as we start? Our loving Father, thank you for enabling that your word is kept for us to hear about Jesus. So please, would you help us this lunchtime, we ask, to have open ears and open hearts and to grasp how valuable Jesus is to us so that it would shape the way we seek to serve him through the year ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, uh, John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Um, As we start a new year, and indeed a new decade, I'm sure many of us will be saying things like, I I think I would like to try to be a better Christian this year. Or if we're not a Christian, we might be thinking, I might get round to making more time to understand and investigate Jesus in 2020, which is probably why you're here this lunchtime. And it's not too bad for a New Year's resolution, isn't it? But I guess what level of time and attention is appropriate to serving Jesus? What is the right amount of time or effort that we need to put into investigating him or to serving him? The answer to that question really depends on how much value we put on Jesus, how much value you think he is, and how much value you think what he has done for you has. A bloke I know was thinking about proposing to his girlfriend, so he thought he'd get her a special engagement ring. And he asked for advice, and his friend told him that make sure he was generous and extravagant. So he doubled his budget, and he eventually settled on a platinum ring with a diamond stone. His fiancée thankfully loved the ring. She thought it was perfect, and she said yes. But then at some point, she showed the ring to her mother, as most brides do, or most fiancées do. And her mother took one look at the ring, and the look of disappointment on her face was evident. And she said, ah, a silver ring, right. She probably thought cheapskate boyfriend couldn't really fork out any money to spend money on something decent. Thankfully, his fiancée was quick to correct his mother-in-law and explain that the ring was actually platinum, which could look a little bit like silver, but would be much more valuable. And the point of the story is that we need to get our valuation right in order to respond rightly. His mother-in-law didn't understand the value of the ring, and so she couldn't respond rightly. And in our passage today, 
John, the gospel writer, shows us two responses to Jesus, one from Mary and one from Judas. And I wonder, as we heard the passage being read to us, what we made of Mary's response to Jesus. I wonder whether we think she has valued Jesus correctly. She's gone to extraordinary lengths to honor him. We're told in verse 2 that a dinner was served in Jesus' honor. But in verse 3, Mary goes even further. Take a look with me. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now this act by Mary would have been socially extraordinary at the time. Firstly, the washing of feet would have been something reserved for slaves and maybe Gentile slaves at the time. But even more than that, Mary being a woman, having opened up her hair to wipe his feet, that would have been very unusual at the time for women to open up their hair in public. And so for her to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair would have been very extraordinary in their social context. We're also told from the passage that it is financially extraordinary. Judas tells us that it would have, co- it would have gained 300 denarii if it was sold. So the perfume would have been worth 300 denarii, which is about one year's wages, with a denarii being about a day's wages at the time. If we look at today's minimum wage, that is a minimum of 20,000 pounds that she's spent on perfume. And whether you're from Cheapside or from Chelsea, that is a lot of money to spend on perfume. So why would she spend so much on Jesus? What value does she see in him that Judas doesn't? And you see, something similar is going on here to the story of the ring. And whilst Jesus and the ring are completely incomparable, the point here is that Judas hasn't grasped the true worth of Jesus. And many of us who know the gospel story and know Judas' role in the gospel, we know that he's a villain. We know he's the one who betrays Jesus. Even though we know that, when we read this story, it's easy for us to have a little bit of sympathy for Judas. Judas gives us the impression of somebody who is financially prudent, someone who is measured, who is considerate, as opposed to Mary, who is reckless, extravagant, overkeen, overzealous, unthoughtful. And so as we look at this passage at the start of a new year, as we consider our ambitions and plans for 2020, as we consider our desire to serve Jesus, we must ask ourselves the question, how much value do we assign to the Lord Jesus? And how will that shape our response to him in 2020? And it's my hope that this passage will, see, will help us see what it is about Jesus that causes Mary to respond this way and help us see why that is entirely right. Now, firstly, it's important for us to understand that this account, read on its own, could look like an isolated case of extreme devotion by Mary. But the story John recalls for us here is placed in the middle of a series of events or pieces of information that John repeats either side of the story. So really, John is inviting us to consider Mary's response or Mary's act of devotion in light of the context that surrounds it because he repeats these pieces of information on both sides. The first thing John tells us on either side of the story is that Jesus has just performed a resurrection. Look with me at 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So that's before the story. After the story, John repeats the same idea, 12 verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This would have been one of Jesus' most exciting miracles so far, recorded for us in chapter 11. 
But around this story, John insists on repeating that, that same truth twice, just so that we would make sure we're looking at Mary's devotion with that in mind. That's the first set of events, almost like a sandwich around our story. Secondly, John wants us to know that Jesus is about to die or to be killed. If you look at 11, verse 57, which is on the same page, we're told that the Pharisees and the chief priests had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. Why do they want to arrest him? We're told in verse 53 that they had plans to put Jesus to death. So John wants us to know he's about to be killed. And on the other side of the passage, 12 verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They want to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. So John is repeating on either side of the story that Jesus is about to be killed. And then the last piece of information, like a triple sandwich on either side, is that John wants us to see that Jesus is the king. Now, if you look at 12 verse 13, further down the page on the right, John recounts what the crowd think about Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And just in case we might think that the crowd are just excited and haven't really understood who Jesus is, John then shows us a quote from Zechariah in verse 15, that Jesus is a perfect match for by sitting on a colt on verse 14. So look at verse 15. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So this is a quote from Zechariah at least 100 years before Jesus has come. And it talks about their coming king who would be sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written. So Jesus is a match. Make no mistake, John is trying to show us, Jesus is the promised king. And even before our story about Mary, Martha had made a declaration in chapter 11, verse 27, that Jesus Jesus is the Christ. He said this in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So on both sides of the story, we're shown that Jesus is the king. We're shown that Jesus is about to be killed. And we've shown that Jesus has just performed a resurrection. So is Mary's action appropriate in light of this context? Now, whilst we're told that there is a plot to kill Jesus, John also wants us to be clear that Jesus goes willingly to Jerusalem to face his death. In chapter 11, from around verse 7 to 14, There's an ongoing discourse between Jesus and his disciples about his trip to Judea at the time. And they say this in verse 8. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And you follow on the discussion to verse 11. Jesus then says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. So essentially, Jesus, you don't need to go there. If he's just sleeping, he will be fine. You don't need to go there. So they sense the danger of going towards Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 11, the crowd as well begin to sense the danger because in verse 56, they're wondering, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? And we're told in verse 57 that the Pharisees had given orders that whoever knows where Jesus was, they should let them know so they might arrest him. So the disciples sense the danger of going towards Jerusalem. The crowd sense the danger of going towards Jerusalem. John wants us to see the danger of Jesus going to Jerusalem. And in 12 verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, Bethany which is 12, within two miles of Jerusalem. And if that's not enough, 12 verse 
12, then Jesus goes straight into Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem with the knowledge that there awaits him a death. And it's, if you think about the current crisis between the U.S. and Iran, this would be the equivalent of one of maybe the generals, the top generals in Trump's army, saying publicly, I'm going to Tehran. Publicly letting everybody know that I'm actually going there despite the fact that Iran have made many threats of retaliation. It would have been very obvious that maybe there would be a mark on his head or his life would have been at threat. But Jesus goes instead to Jerusalem. Now it's Passover time, we're told in verse 1. And so for anyone who knows about Passover, right at the heart of our center of our thinking is we should be thinking about a rescuing death, a substitutionary death, a death that would happen so that others can escape death. And so John is showing us an extravagant act from Mary in the middle of a context that is so rich with imagery and signs about who Jesus is, what he, is, what he has done and what he's about to do. And so he's inviting us to consider her response in light of this context. If Jesus is the king, the king who is going to die, the king who is going to give his life willingly so that others would not have to die, is Mary's socially and financially extravagant response the right thing? Does the life-giving death of King Jesus warrant such an act of devotion? That's really the question that we're left with, with the context. And so let's look at Mary's response again very carefully. Look at me at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Firstly, we can see that her response is a public one. The fragrance filled the whole house. Everybody there would have smelt it. The neighbors passing by most likely would have smelt it. Anyone walking by that door would have known what had happened. It would have been like walking past the fragrance section of any department store. There's nothing private about her act of devotion. And because of this, everybody got to know who Mary was as the lady who poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And to show you that in 11, chapter 11, verse 2, if you turn the page over on one, page 1081, as John is about to recount the resurrection of Lazarus, verse 2, he says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So even before John tells us about Mary's act of devotion, he already tells us this is how Mary is known in the time. So the crowd and the people around the time would have known her as maybe Fragrance Mary. That would have been her nickname, or Extravagant Mary, or the equivalent of Jesus Freak, or Bible Basher Mary, the one who loves Jesus so much that she spends so much on perfume on him. That's how public it was. Secondly, we are shown that it is costly. Judas helps us understand that, we, that it's worth 300. Sorry, apologies. Judas helps us understand that it's worth 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. And we said a minimum, at minimum for us today, that's 20,000 pounds at minimum. On average, I wonder what the average wage of somebody who works on a yearly basis in Canary Wharf is. That's how much is being spent here on perfume to, to anoint Jesus' feet. It's costly. And she wipes his feet with her hair, an act that would have been reserved for slaves or for servants. It's costly. Then lastly, it is lavish. She spends this amount of money on a pound or pint of perfume, which is about half a liter, on perfume which will evaporate in maybe two or three days. If she used it as a deposit on a house for Jesus, we might say, yes, it's expensive, but it's practical. 
If she used it on a tomb for Jesus, we say, yes, it's expensive, but it's practical because it's going to die. But she spends it on perfume, which will evaporate. It's public, it's costly, it's lavish, it's almost outrageous so that she can honor Jesus. So, is Jesus worth it? And I say, yes, he is. Because Jesus' life-giving death is such an extraordinary sacrifice, then Mary's extraordinary act of devotion makes perfect sense. But you see, John, the, the author, doesn't stop there. Because he has put Judas's challenge side by side, he's inviting us further to decide whether we think that there is a better response, a more thoughtful response, a more prudent measured response, one that's not insane. Why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Surely that's a better idea. Yes, we can understand that her brother was raised from the dead, but this feels like a spare-of-the-moment decision, one that hasn't been well thought through. Is that really the best response? And all of a sudden, we're left with like a multiple-choice question where several of the answers look like they're correct. But John doesn't leave us to scratch our heads and wonder which of the two is right. In a gospel full of signs about who Jesus is, John gives us two clear signs in this passage which answer we should choose. Look with me at verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sorry, which Judas? It's Judas who was about to betray Jesus. He's inserted that in brackets. And if we were in court, immediately the lawyers would be shouting, objection, Your Honor, witness credibility. Can we trust Judas who is about to betray Jesus? 300 denarii for the poor. Now, that sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Hang on, look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Anybody here want to side with the betrayer or the thief? Hands up. I don't think so. So John is, is just carefully stripping away every other response so that we see that only one response is right. And then Jesus weighs in. Leave her alone, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. So John is showing us that only one response is right, and that is Mary's. Only one response measures up. Only one response reflects the value of Jesus' sacrificial and life-giving death on our behalf. And that is public, lavish, sacrificial, costly, wholehearted, uninhibited, and unrestrained devotion to Jesus. Only one response is right. And as we wrap up, maybe let's think about this then for ourselves. As we take stock of 2019 or set direction for the year ahead, John is really asking us to consider what Jesus's death means for us and how that would shape the way we respond to him this year. There's a danger of siding with Judas a little bit. 20,000 pounds, that feels rather extreme. Maybe 2019 was a bit over the top with your efforts to tell others about Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, this year I'll just tone it down. I'll keep Jesus to myself, get my head down and carry on with work. Maybe financially, you may be thinking, I was a bit reckless last year with my giving and it cost us as a family. Maybe this year I'll tone it down a little bit. Or maybe our colleagues or our family or our friends are happy with us being good moral Christians, but when we try to convince them and everybody else, even those who believe other things, to listen to Jesus, maybe that's a little bit extreme. 
Maybe it's okay for us to come to the barge to listen to a Bible talk or to go to church on Sunday. But when our love for Jesus begins to affect our career choices or our financial choices, then it's a bit extreme. And I know many of us will have given so much or responded very sacrificially to serve Jesus. But there's always a lingering temptation that maybe it's a bit extreme. This year, let's take our feet off the gas. But is it really extreme? John is asking us. How extreme is it in response to the one who died, who went willingly towards danger so that you wouldn't have to face death yourself? How extreme is it? But not just anyone who went, but the one who is king, the Christ. How how extreme is it that we would give everything for him? You see, the passage isn't really about guilt-tripping us to respond like Mary but it's really to show us how extraordinary Jesus is. And Mary's act of devotion shows us exactly that. So as we head into 2020, shall we consider again for ourselves how remarkable Jesus is so that we would serve him and continue serving him publicly, costly, and extravagantly? I have personally found it extremely helpful to consider this as I prepare to speak today because I came to the start of this year feeling tired feeling a bit wary, and thinking maybe I overcommitted to stuff last year. Maybe this year I should take it easy. But maybe you ought to do that yourself. Maybe it's worth taking some time to think for yourself. What does Jesus' death for me, that is for you, what does it mean? How, ex- how, how much worth do I assign to that? So that it would shape the way we think about how we will serve him this year. Maybe do that together as a Christian group in your office. Maybe together as you think about your plans for the year ahead, How extraordinary do we think Jesus' death is on our behalf? And how should that shape our priorities for 2020? And maybe we need to do this every three months or every five months because it's helpful to remind ourselves to serve Jesus comes at a cost to all Christians. And I expect that it will cost many of us here in 2020. And so it's my hope and prayer that as we look again and again at Jesus and his life-giving death, we will see that actually it is the right response. It is not over the top. As we wrap up, I'll quote from Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, and he says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, for love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Please allow me to pray as we finish. Our loving Father, we praise you for the sin-removing, and the life-giving sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ for each and every one of us here today. Thank you for showing us that a lavish and extravagant act of devotion is the only logical and reasonable response to him. Thank you for Mary, who recognized how precious Jesus is and how much his death meant and how much it means Please help us today and help each of us here understand what Mary understood about Jesus. And please help us this year to respond like Mary, even though at times it might look outrageous to many around us, but that we have seen today is entirely right. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.